Okay. Hey, welcome back, Jason. How's it going? It's going good. Thank you for inviting me to your podcast again. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks for joining me to talk about Xenogears a little more. We're well, uh, about halfway through the game now, uh, depending on how you count. Um, in the in the Shavat episodes, as uh, the the flying city, the second flying city that we hear about actually is coming under attack, and we have to protect it, of course. Um, but we're gonna go back to something that we left off with at the end of our last talk, which was kind of a general uh, aesthetic theory sort of. Uh, chat that we had about a month ago and we came to an interesting place where we were sort of thinking about and this was your idea thinking about nostalgia particularly in the 90s as a kind of um, hope for the future rather than a kind of longing for something that that we can't recover um, maybe, maybe you could just pick up there and and elaborate a little bit about that idea have, have I got that right yeah um, pretty much uh it does seem to me that, you know, um, nostalgia typically treats childhood as sort of this paradise lost that um, one attempts to recover or recreate or at least find a way to appreciate again somehow. But in the 90s, it, and through our media, which sort of informs our perception of the present as well as um, our experience within it, it does seem like the present was something that you wanted to escape. Your childhood was something you wanted to escape. There was a lot of media, including um, musical genres like grunge that had this sort of dark, almost deviant view of childhood. Childhood was, you know, had this filter or this sort of veil over it of being happy and um, safe, but underneath it, there was lurking a lot of dark, unreconciled issues. Um, and that was a big theme regarding childhood in a lot of art and media that was happening at the time. And so the nostalgia for the 90s now is less about how times were back then, but what art was promising at the time, which is a more simplistic moral battle actually happening in culture. If you look at a lot of cyberpunk, and there's a, a, a very big computer game that will be released soon. I think it's called Cyberpunk. I don't remember the exact date that's in the title. It's like 2047 or something like that. Um, I think the reason why there's this big nostalgia for cyberpunk is that it creates this very clear moral line where you have, you know, it's like the individualistic hacker versus, you know, the soulless, invigilating corporate entity, or you had the, the malevolent government versus the sort of stylish activist. Like there was this idea that politics would sort of leave the social realm a little bit, um, and it would open up for a, a sort of new form of like heroism, a sort of simpler form of heroism that sort of matched the heroic tales of the past. You would have you know, a, a scrappy band of, you know, stylish hackers who would, you know, fight off corporate entities or other big sort of, you know, uh, uh, institutions. Absolutely. But that, the Matrix right now, I'm imagining. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The Matrix or the X-Files or just, you know, that was science fiction at the time. But that future didn't happen. <laughs> we're, we're, what we've discovered is that um, 
especially with the rise of identity politics, is that those social issues never, they, they never were resolved and they're sort of coming in full force. And so um, there's a, a sort of disappointment, I think, on the part of a lot of 90s children that, you know, the, there wouldn't be the sort of like stylish, fun future where, you know, the morality of what you had to do was clear and your path would be clear. Yes, I, I like that idea of the, the, the complexity of the social milieu being somehow disappointing to people who uh, appreciated the art and um, the storytelling that, that characterized their youth. And I think probably just the way that young people tend to read also, right? Like maybe there's more nuance there in some of these stories, but as a young person, reading them, you're kind of getting just broad strokes, right? And you're seeing the good versus evil dynamics and they, they kind of come through really clearly. I think this is a, uh, an argument put forward um, by Piaget in one of his books about sort of like stages in the child's development of a sense of morals and how, you know, he, he lays it out that there's this kind of escalating sense of subtlety about rule making and stuff. But, you know, that, that seems right to me. I don't know if how much that's held up in the, the psychologies uh, of our time, which are, of course, much more complex and nuanced as well. Uh, but yeah, yeah. In, invigilating. I love that word. That's a new word for me. Um, so like I searched first, I searched cyberpunk. It's 2077 looks like. Oh. And, and then I looked up invigilating. So, so like watching you, like a, a police state kind of thing. Right. Um, yeah. I, there's, there's elements of that certainly, but it's, it's not clear who's, who's responsible. We, we've sort of given up our, our rights of privacy, right? Uh, we've, we've put ourselves in this, this situation. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, there was an ironic turn that happened, you know, as sort of politics evolved in the 2000s where it no longer was, you know, this big scary government that we all had to fight against. We were so angry at each other that we now started to appeal to authoritarian forces to like help us battle these, you know, <laughs> other tribes. And so it, it's almost kind of complete inverse of how we expected politics to have evolved in the next century. That's an interesting, uh, I think, read of the, of the political situation right now. And I think you see that in um, all sorts of authority figures too, right? Not, not simply the state or, you know, um, government, but, but also people who are responsible for kids, right? At schools, um, they, they've attained a, a quasi-police-like status um, just because it seems so dangerous out there, right? Like there's a lot of um, bad news about what goes on in, um, in settings that, yeah, ideally would be safe, would be uh, gentler perhaps, but clearly just, just aren't. It's not the way it's turned out. Um, so given that, um, when you look at Xenogears, uh, what do you think that it has to say about that? Was it sort of, um, of, of a time, you know, of its time and, and portraying some kind of lost paradise? Was it doing a little bit more to shade that in with um, some nuance and, and 
a complexity. Um, how do you view it now looking back at it? Well, I, I think it's very much of the time with regards to this topic. Um, so in Xenogears, you know, the, the authority fit, you know, the institutions are basically manufacturing wars and conflict amongst, you know, the lambs, amongst the, the sort of small people. And so there was still that idea that, you know, all of the evil was easy to place. It, it was in the higher, the higher ups in society, it was the higher ups in institutions. And, you know, Faye is a very, you know, every man, you know, he's not part of, you know, any sort of like institution per se. And, and so we, we still had this clear moral delineation that um, I feel was very much stressed at the time. There was a very anti-authoritarian mindset in, in almost all arts at the time. Um, it, it was pretty universal. And I, I think a lot of the nostalgia is towards that, that sort of like moral simplicity that, that um, video games like Xenogears, but also a lot of media was sort of expressing. And he has to grapple with this first, it seems like in the, um, in the assault on his village, right, which has kind of taken him in and the devastation of, of that kind of idyllic um, hometown comes partly as a result of this evil um, government, right? This shadowy Gebler force, which is involved in, in this distant war. Um, but, but also partly because he is not who he thought he was, right? He's got this kind of secret um, locked inside of him that, that emerges there. And that becomes a really interesting motif that you see throughout the game is a lot of the characters, playable characters have some kind of dark past, you know, and, and that strikes me as being very typical of storytelling from that era and from older, you know, from comic strips, comic books rather, you know, comic book superheroes always have that, you know, that thing in their past that sort of caused them to become who they were. Um, and so in Faye's case, it's, it's a thing that's locked away, though, that he's not aware of. And he sort of has to come to a consciousness of it throughout the game. Um, how, the, how the dark past thing uh, comes out and how the, you know, shadowy government force uh, controlling everything comes out, they, they sort of work in tandem in an interesting way, if you see what I mean. Um, do you think that there's some kind of... Um, uh, parallel being drawn there, or um, how, how does that work? Well, I, I guess I could see a parallel in the sense that the truth can oftentimes be very fuzzy. You know, the, there's um, a lot of times there's not a clear way to determine what's real and what isn't real. And I, I think it is sort of um, the game is making that claim that I'm trying to remember um, who said it, but there was a character in the game and maybe you can um, remind me who it was, who sort of basically claims that, you know, it, it doesn't matter what's real or not, as long as people believe it, it, mm -hmm. it might've been someone 
in ethos i can't i can't quite remember that sounds um, right yeah i think it is one of the ethos members who um he's the one who's dressed in red he's called verlaine that yes i think that i think that's who i'm thinking of nice. um so yeah it, it's it's this idea of identity being something that can shift or change over time um, it's not clear what constitutes your identity. Can you have sort of a singular identity? Is identity layered? Does it have tiers to it? Um, what aspect of yourself is truly the most representative? I think these things are very ambiguous, in, in not only in the game, but I, I think that's another thing that was sort of a big theme at the time, this breaking down of clear distinctions in terms of identity. Identity is something that, you know, is almost an artifice that you can sort of build up for yourself. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think, and it's not only build up for yourself, but that can be built for you as well, whether it's by a shadowy government or some sort of religious institution. And so it's, it's one of the trials that a person has to overcome is really figuring out what their identity is and sort of like arrest it back from um, malevolent forces. And um, it, that's also a big theme um, in Baudrillard's book um, concerning simulation is that, you know, simulations, the threat of the simulation or something that is like created to re represent supposedly something that's real, is that it can replace the thing that it's representing. Um, and, and that's definitely a strategy that the governmental and authoritarian forces in this world are doing. They're creating these um, images of people in order to force them into certain conflicts or identities. Yeah, that, that aspect of um, the ethos that you bring up, right, which is I think important to note, um, I, I read recently that that is a translation decision that was made because the, the literal word there is just church um, mm, in the Japanese mm. script, right? It's just the church and it's like got a pope and bishops and it, it's clearly supposed to be, <laughs> to be the, the Catholic church. Um, but they, they translate it as ethos, which is an interesting choice because it, again, it, the meaning of that word is uh, something like character. Right the, the, right, the kind of person that you are, your, your force of character or something like that. And so again, it's like that maps on really nicely to this idea of, of having to decide or determine your identity to um, get it back, right, from those who would, who would uh, assert power over you, right? And I remember really distinctly um, something from school where we had a, you know, a unit in English class where we were discussing identity. For, you know, it was like months that, that that was what we were purportedly learning about in English class. Um, we probably did like writing and reading too, but that, that was what we were supposed to be figuring out and wrestling with was identity. And it was very serious and important because, you know, it's middle school. <laughs> and like, right. Yeah. And so with Faye, you know, having this, this battle with himself uh, and with, those who would try to use him in various ways, right? Uh, sorry about that dog. That's a that's a neighbor. I think everything's okay here. Um, <laughs> hey, but uh, that that strikes me as being 
like what you're describing from the Baudrillard um, simulacrum, right? In Faye's case, he has something there to kind of protect him from himself. Uh, it seems like a kind of um, a simpler uh, that every man that he seems to be. Um, but beneath it is something that's actually really dangerous and, and uh, is what kind of destroys uh, the village where he's, he's living and, and with it his um, kind of simple reality. Um, how, how does that work with the government or, or whatever authority it is? Do they similarly try to promote some kind of banal existence for their own, you know, nefarious purposes? Are they just afraid of the kinds of, you know, forces of, of unconscious desire or, um, you know, power, various kinds of power that could be unleashed if people really delved into their identities? What, what is the government or the authority up to in, in promoting these images in place of the real thing? Are you talking um, specifically in Xenogears or just as a, a general strategy in real life as well? I think I'm talking mostly about the general right now, but we can then try to find some good points of reference, or if you have some in mind for Xenogears, that's good too, of course. Yeah, I, I think I'll start with the general. Um, so Baudrillard specifically admonishes ethnography. Um, in this sense. So there's, there's a very probably mythological or apocryphal um, belief that Native Americans believe that photography steals their souls. Now, I, I believe that that belief is probably something that's way over exaggerated and um, based, I think, on one anthropologist's supposed conversations with some Native American people. Obviously, it's not entirely true since there's a, a big tradition of Native American portraiture. But it has this weird sort of wisdom in it, in the sense that if someone takes your picture, and that's the only image of you that the masses will see, and you don't own that picture, and you aren't publishing that picture, then is that picture going to truly represent you? And how can you fight against its, its sort of dominance over your own sense of identity? Because your own sense of identity is going to be influenced by other people's perception of you. And so in a, in a sort of general sense, there's that kind of same thing happening with any authoritarian structure. Authoritarian structures, governments usually have some role in the media that the masses will be exposed to for the most part. And so this media is going to be full of representations of all different types of people. And these rep representations are going to be necessarily shallow. They're not going to have the depth that real people possess. They're going to exhibit characteristics that are not going to be true of all people of certain categories. It's basically the effect of the stereotype. Now, a lot of people claim that stereotypes are based on personal experiences, and it's sort of like, you know, 
it's it's sort of like blue collar anthropology. It's like you know the the sort of norms that you figure out as you go about your life. I would say that stereotypes are pretty much a top down creation. You know, we the vast majority of stereotypes are based on are will be of people that most people have no personal experience with, and so when authoritarian structures are able to control the simulations of people, whether it's through film, television, the media, it's going to, it's going to overwhelm the sense of identity that people can create for themselves. Um, the thing about art is that it, what it does is it, it's a form of experience that is more focused and crafted for an emotional response that, you know, is not the case when we're experiencing something in normal life. When you go through your life, there is a countless amount of stimulus that's entering your brain and your brain's very blunt, rough filters are going to try to make meaning of it. But art, especially when it's crafted by talented professionals, is going to have a, a focus to it and it's going to use the tools of like composition of um you know other sort of like theoretical strategies that are developed in art theory so that it has a, an immediate strong emotional and narrative impact and so the fact that art is able to do this is able to create this reaction it allows it to sort of replace our senses of people that we have in in our own experience. Um, I think there was this uh, recent study that showed that quote unquote fake news is creating false memories in people. <laughs> and I think one of the reasons is, is that, you know, we're living in the age of like the clickbait title, the clickbait, you know, opening paragraph, you know, all of these clickbaits, clickbait titles and clickbait thumbnails, it's just, that's just the form of marketing for news. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's so persuasive and it's so persuasive that it's actually replacing people's memories with things they've never experienced before. And so, you know, and I actually found the quote by Verlaine. Um, he says, God, where does such a being exist? You should know by now how the ethos came about. It was an organization created by Solaris eons ago solely for the purpose of managing ignorant humans. Its doctrines are just deceptions to control the masses. The ethos used the two sweet fruits of faith and technology well to skill to fully manipulate global affairs and people's zeal. Yeah. So that, that is the role of art. You could, you could say that religions are masterfully crafted pieces of art they're amazingly persuasive because they know how to trigger all of the emotional um parts in our brain um succinctly and with focus and and they basically replace our feelings and our memories that we've generated organically um with the messages that they're promoting so i'm sorry that was a long rambling answer but um that's how i that's how i see the basic strategy operating in society no, that, that's a, an excellent uh, kind of exploration of the, the bridge, I guess, between the social and the artistic experience. And, and I think it's starting to make sense to me then how you can 
try to manipulate that in lots of uh, nefarious ways, right? If if that's your your intention um, as a as an authority, but I think it's also from the opposite side of it. It's clear to me too that the Xenogears world is one in which these moments of artistic beauty um, occur kind of spontaneously in ways that promote more of a of a self awareness, right? So not not giving you stereotypes about others in the world and, and what it's supposed to be like, but about, you know, true self-knowledge that, that kind of breaks through um, thanks to unexpected glimpses of, of art. So I want to throw that out there as a kind of uh, flip side of, of the, well, kind of using that framework that you've described, but just as a, a particular case, I think we mentioned this last time that the very opening of the game has that beautiful cinematic sequence, which really draws you in, and it and it ends on that little, you know, picture of the the locket of the the captain and his family, right? So there's there's that little moment there. There's a similar one when when Faye is visiting Satan to borrow the the um, the camera, right, to take pictures at the wedding the next day. So um, there's an an image making device, but it's actually the um, the music box that Satan has been tinkering with. Um, one theory is that he's going to give it as a gift to his daughter. Um, so there's again this kind of idea of you know conveying a sense of identity um, through a beautiful image, right? Which in this case is is musical primarily, although there's also like some pictures and things inside the music box. A later one to go back to the religion. Uh, that you see is at the Nissan Cathedral. So in Nissan, this um, sort of paradisical country that's that's off the other side of where the war is going on, they have this beautiful old cathedral there, and there's this point at which the the camera sort of pans over it to show you what it looks like inside, and the characters pause to to sort of talk about what they see in the statuary. Um, and the light, and then upstairs there's this portrait. Uh, it's unfinished, but it's it's this um, beautiful woman. And again, the characters sort of discuss the art. It's a kind of um, uh, discussion of an image, an ekphrasis, um, in in that kind of poetic, you know, inspiration that comes from some other artistic work. Um, I, I think that that is is powerfully, I guess, countervailing the the evil and malicious kinds of art because because it brings out this kind of truth of of the characters of their stories of their their memories that have been lost or or sort of uh, papered over by by something more humdrum um, so do you remember those those examples can you think of others maybe too where where art breaks through in these ways in the game and and helps to trigger memory well. So one of the most interesting um, representations of art in the game is Lacan's portrait of Ellie. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know what the motivation was behind the style that they chose to show the painting. Because it's, it's surreal because Ellie in the world of Xenogears is in the sort of cartoonish anime style. But in her portrait, she's in a hyper-realistic, almost sort of faux, faux 
Renaissance style of painting. It's of a heightened realism than the actual reality of the game. Um, and that's such a like a, a bizarre juxtaposition. I, I, I don't even know if they did that because they wanted to show off the graphical abilities of the PlayStation or if they were making some sort of commentary about how sometimes reality is trying to simulate art rather than art trying to simulate reality. Mm -hmm. the, the art is, is the ideal and reality is something that attempts to live up to the art. I don't know if you had if if it struck you as weird the the style that the the painting was in as opposed to the the style that the characters in the reality of the game are in. Yeah, it, well, I agree. I think so. In the very first introduction to Ellie, it's again a um a, a full kind of anime hand drawn looking sequence, and um, she's holding you at gunpoint and speaking in a language you can't understand. And so it's very jarring and very striking. Um, and then, yeah, to, to then see her image. And at this point in the game, she's still kind of an enigmatic figure. She's, no, she's not part of your, your team yet. Um, she's still an enemy. And, and you see her picture there in this ancient, you know, room at the top of the tower of the cathedral. And, and so that's very striking. And that's what Faye notices. And, and what I think the player is bound to notice as well, first of all is is the the person portrayed the the content of the image but what you're pointing out and what satan points out interestingly is the form you know the the style of the art itself and the brush strokes he says are reminiscent or even match you know Faye's uh painting style and so that's what satan notices and then Faye points out oh it's it looks like ellie like it is her and satan's like oh yeah i guess it is <laughs> he didn't he didn't really notice it but um yeah so for me I, I i took that to be them trying to represent the kind of classical you know portraiture style um to to emphasize you know the amazing quality of of Faye's talent of this mysterious artist's talent and also again to to highlight the fact that the um the portrait is unfinished. There's this patch of it, which stands out because the rest is so sort of beautifully, and this goes back to something we were talking about a lot last time, right? The beautiful mess, right? It's mm -hmm. everything about part of the painting is, is great, uh, idealized. And then part of the painting is completely unfinished, kind of like the entire second disc of season cares. If you, if you want to be a little snarky about it, right? Like there's, there's this unfinished quality, which, it stands out in in distinction to the um, the the beautiful brushstrokes of of the portrait. Um, so that's what I took from that. Um, and I, I'm amused that you are looking at it more like Satan, and I'm looking at it more like Faye, I guess. Well, it, it strikes me as necessarily fourth wall breaking. <laughs> yeah, because it it has an impossible in the physics of the world level of realism. Um, so to, to get back to your point about the difference between sort of malevolent art and mm -hmm. simulation versus, uh, art that exhibits beauty and, and sort of like positive themes, um, I want to run by you, uh, a sort of my understanding of what Baudrillard is sort of warning against. Mm -hmm. So... 
he talks about the different stages of the sign or of appearances. And the first stage is more on the level of like a sign or a symbol, something that could never be confused with the thing that it's representing. And it builds towards, um, as it progresses to what's more a representational appearance, an appearance that the observer could actually confuse as being the real, as opposed to simply a representation or a simulation. And so that's really the danger. It's of representational art that can replace what is real. And I, I'm wondering if something is beautiful, does that, does that make it okay? Does that alleviate the risk of art replacing in the minds of their observers the thing it's meant to represent? If, if this picture of Ellie is beyond the beauty of what could actually be exhibited in the real world, does the picture, does the picture dominate over the real Ellie? It's, yeah, that's a really interesting way to, to pose the problem because I think what I'm reading in, in their relationship between Faye and Ellie, there is a kind of dominance that comes out. And I think that it gets kind of switched uh, towards the end of the game. I don't remember the end of the game that well, but I, I know that some, some serious um, turns of events come, come up. So I'm not sure how far to go with this, but you know, early in the game at least, there's a strong sense that um, that Ellie and Faye are each trying to sort of have the upper hand, right? Um, and at at the point in which you're you're looking at that picture, um, Faye really does have the upper hand. He's bested her a couple of times at that point and like saved her life. And you know she's very much damseled, right, in the in the parlance uh, of these these things. Um, and that annoys some players, um, but I—I I mean, I think it's sort of like a fairy tale, or again, a comic book sort of storytelling thing there, where Faye, you know, is established as the hero because he saves her, and she, in turn, is going to save him later. But but that's a little later. And so at this point, you know, he is the one who seems to um, be dictating the terms of the relationship. He's the one who's pursuing her forcibly. Uh, trying to get her away from her um, her army, right? Responsibilities to her country, which happens to be sort of a evil country, but you know that's not her fault. Um, she's loyal because that's the kind of person she is, and you know she cares about her family, and they're there. So, you know, she has this kind of divided loyalty, which he really forces her to to choose, and the, the choice finally comes in a in a really striking seen uh, in Kislev, right? After you've been imprisoned there for a while, she, um, she shows up as part of this, this group that's gonna blow up the entire city just to kill Faye, apparently, uh, is the plan. And um, you know, everyone else is expendable because he's so you know, crucial because of who he is, because of what his, his, his essence is that, that again has sort of been peeking out from time to time, but still not fully understood. And so she's part of the attack and he persuades her really to to leave it and to to fight back against them for the first time she turns around and and pushes against right the nuke that's going to blow up the city or you know the bomb that's going to trigger the nuke that's going to blow up the city whatever and she really um really embraces that at that point he he shows her sort of what her 
actions are causing in the in the chaos and the the burning of the you know all the civilians running around and um and so she's persuaded is basically what i'm trying to say um that's i think partly because of this deep connection that faith feels with her which he can't explain but which is which is triggered by these artistic moments right the music that stirs something inside of him um the the image where he has this flashback to to being the artist and she the the person sitting for the portrait right and so there's this deep relationship that's that's pre-established between them and which he um gets hints of in the art and that that seems to you know trigger his his advances and um and she reciprocates there at that point um not in a romantic way yet uh but in a in terms of her allegiance to him and so her identity is really pulled in with his and his of course has this deep undercurrent and she's going to start to sort of feel that too um these kind of these ancient memories are starting to come back as the game goes on um but yeah i so i see it as uh, potentially dangerous right because it it unleashes these things it it unleashes these these power dynamics um and it and it definitely breaks up what otherwise um is kind of a harmonious you know situation but again i see that as being a countervailing force against manipulation by by a by a, a, a hegemonic power in the shadows somewhere um but but again we we don't know that at this point it's just you know the sheer sort of power that's unleashed and fay does terrible things to people he cares about as a result of it right when when id pops out he he just causes a ruckus so <laughs> right so one of the things that i was uh wondering thinking about the game is and it ties back to our first conversation a little bit is there are so many influences you know religions books particularly the bible different cultures that it sort of pulls in an a la carte fashion and sort of like mashes together in in this very um i guess multifaceted story and artistic style and it makes me wonder because it does it in such a a piecemeal sort of mosaic fashion that we get a a sense of the connotation of things that are being referenced i mean you mentioned you know it's called id that's obviously re- referring to sort of sigmund freud's yes. series um there are endless biblical references but they're the references aren't related in the same sort of like symbolic algebra as their sources they're mm-hmm. they're kind of like meshed together and so i'm wondering as an observer how exactly are you supposed to identify with these characters and not saying that you know it, it's necessarily difficult because the art fails it's 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 an incredibly inventive video game but if it's drawing from cultural artifacts in such a i don't want to say random but in a very cavalier like, right yeah yeah that's actually a great word for it um exactly how are we meant to identify with these characters and with the storylines that are running through the game it's something i asked myself and i'm not exactly sure what the right answer to that is i didn't i didn't know if you had an answer for no, that no i don't i i think that's a really important question and i think it's 
it's interesting because it it brings us back to the sense in which this game is a work of art, but also a you know consumer commodity. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's a piece of um, it's a toy, right? It's something that people right. are going to buy for their kids, or kids are going to persuade their parents to buy for them, or whatever, right? Or maybe people now are trying to buy on eBay for exorbitant prices or whatever. But but it's so it's this thing that each person who comes to the game is going to have their own intentions. And probably the primary intention is to just like enjoy the thing, um, whatever that means to them. Now for people like me, and I think you too, right? Enjoyment comes from really digging into intellectually and um, thinking about philosophically some of the, the themes of that game. Now, if it's the fact of the matter that those themes are there as a kind of veneer to, um, <laughs> to, persuade us that the game has a deeper meaning that actually it's just kind of hodgepodging together from a bunch of other sources that's in its own way kind of interesting but maybe ultimately a little disappointing right so i don't i don't want that to be the answer <laughs> but i I'm, I'm not entirely sure that it isn't the case you know that they're that these things when they're taken away from their context and kind of thrown together in this fashion it might not be quite as satisfying, right? When you really stop and think about what's going on. Um, but I, I would say for me as a kid playing the game and enjoying it, you know, I also had the sense of these kind of immense architectures of thought and, and philosophy and morality looming in the background of the game. They're, I mean, they're put right in your face, but the sources that they're drawn from, from is what I mean here. Those are the things that you get a kind of sense of. And so then if you so choose, you can, you can go and look up what those sources are and then you see them in their context, right? And then you get the full or as much as possible, you, you get a fuller sense of what those things really mean. And so I think the game, far from diminishing the, the kind of intellectual integrity or the even a religious sense of some of these things, I think that it, can lead to a deeper appreciation of them. It can be people's first brush with like taking a religious idea seriously, um, even if it's in this kind of you know the the matrix uh, kind of thing where you know it's very clear cut who's good, who's evil. You know you have to resist against the ethos. Well, you know the the picture of God that ultimately emerges in the game is a lot more complex and you know, is drawn from the book of Revelation. <laughs> so, so go read that and try to figure out what it means, I guess. Uh, that, that's my, my take on it. But, you know, I think a lot of people would just get frustrated by, <laughs> by all this stuff that's like just, just a lot of window dressing on an on a old RPG. So I guess my, my one worry is that you can never discount the order in which you are exposed to certain things. Mm -hmm. You mentioned how a lot of the biblical contexts may create interest in the Bible or religions in general and would lead to further study. But if your first exposure is something that is an interpretation or a reimagining, you know, the first thing is always the thing that's going to have the strongest impression on you, and it's going to be the filter that influences everything afterwards. And so if the, the 
the representation or the the satire or the um, the remix, so to speak, is your first impression, then does that allow you to have the best sort of exposure to the things that it's drawing from? Is it always going to color how you approach religions? And is it going to color it in a way that'll help you understand those religions? Or is it going to muddle it up with all of the associations that you created while playing the game um, but are irrelevant or not um, pertinent to the study of specific topics. Um, this is kind of sort of related, but um, so there was a bit of a controversy with the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because of a depiction of Bruce Lee that happens in the film. Okay. And one of the criticisms is that it portrays Bruce Lee, according to some, in a inaccurate manner. And the problem is it's going to be a lot of people's first exposure to this human being. Um, and so even if they decide to watch his films or read into him afterwards, since that was the first exposure, it's going to color and alter everything that comes after it. So does, is that something that's worth worrying about whenever you have a piece of art that so aggressively references other works of art that perhaps are could be of great importance to people later on in life. Is that something that's worth even being wary about or would, would that not color things to a, an extent that where people can no longer see the thing for what it is originally? No, yeah, I see that that concern. I I definitely had some kind of exposure to religion. So to use that example, I, I had some kind of framework in mind. Like I recognized, you know, that these words came from somewhere else, and what that you know represented as a historical thing in the real world, quote unquote. Right. Um, so I had some kind of basis. So I think the the psychological uh, dimension of it, right, with id, that was probably the first time that I, you know, ex experienced that concept uh, of the id, right? Um, maybe it was the first time I experienced something that I could call um, the, uh, right, the, the drive um, of the unconscious, like taking over or something like that. Um, and so, of course, it's going to make it really hard for me now to like ever read um, Freud if I ever do, I guess. Um, and, and like sort of understand what he means by those terms, because I'm always going to see a picture in my mind of um, this red, you know, mech <laughs> going around and blowing things up. Um, so yeah, I, I think there's, there's a kind of dissonance that's bound to happen there. And I think that it, insofar as that's, inevitable um it just sort of for me points up the importance of of an educational context for these things and, and like i think when we were talking last time i think we talked about a little bit right the idea of like teaching video games and, and kind of curating the experience of of encountering a video game and i think that if you did that carefully um you know you could you could you could design a whole course around playing one of these games 
where you bring sort of like source material in front of the, the, the kids, right? For them to see that and then for them to experience what the game is doing with those things. Um, I think it would make it really engaging, actually. You know, and it, of course, it would muddle it a little bit, but, um, but maybe that's just kind of the way it goes. Um, you're going to have some first experience, and it's probably going to be uh, impure to some extent, right? It's going to be mixed in with some other uh, problem or, um, I don't know, situation. So I, I think the, the education question kind of comes out of that for me. Um, and I, I don't quite know how to approach that. Um, this is this is kind of my my approach, right? Like I, I'm trying to make this this podcast about it and 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 bring out some of these things um, in the hopes that it's helpful for somebody, I guess. But um, but it's definitely just as I said a minute ago, enjoyable for me. <laughs> it's a little bit selfish in that way. Like um, I I just have a great experience with all this stuff as a result of this game, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but that's <laughs> that's just me. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe there's um, there's too much uh, of the of the sanguine in my response there. Um, maybe there is a greater danger than I'm uh, I'm letting on. I, I haven't seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood yet, but um, but I have heard about that that controversy. So that's it's making me want to see it even more. <laughs> well, it I mean it seems to be a danger. Like again, it, I, I don't think any particular art is egregiously guilty of, you know, allusions to other art or to real people. I, I think that's just part of the artistic tradition. Mm -hmm. I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think one way to guard against it is to provide context for all of the allusions that are made in a particular piece of art so that you can always get a sense of what is being referenced, how something is being changed, how something is being altered in order to suit the art mm -hmm. um, in that particular instance. So I think that's, if we're going to accept um, video games and other sort of elusive, heavy, illusion-heavy um, art forms into the curriculum, then providing the, the contextual background would be the best way to present the material. Um, yeah, I, it's, it's not something that I had been worried about for a while. It, it's a pretty recent form of analysis for me. Um, but it, it seems a powerful one because I've been noticing, especially with meme culture, where you take so much out of its original context and you sort of smash it together to create something new that is consumed on a, a mass basis. I do see a lot of instances where people are presenting something as if it, it sort of existed on its own while you know, I'm aware of the fact that, oh, this was from a, a Simpsons episode, or this was from a Seinfeld episode, or this is a historical figure I was aware of, but people just thought this picture of him was funny, and so they put funny text underneath it. it, it it's happening on such a re uh, frequent basis that I worry that so many people are going to have this perception of these appearances of real people that are so divorced from the reality, the historical reality. Yes, that uh, terrifies me. And I, my solution to that is to just not engage with a lot of that internet culture. And I think it's, you know, 
that's just something I, I'm privileged to be able to do, I guess, um, that I, I didn't, you know, I'm not so immersed in it. I'm, I didn't grow up with it. And so it's not really something that I, I feel compelled to, to delve into too much. On the other hand, like that is an audience that I would love to reach, you know, like kids and people who are thoughtful about those things or who are just immersed in those things. And so I don't, I'm without the language to really get to them because I don't, I don't use it. I don't uh, make memes or, or really um, care about them particularly. <laughs> so yeah, it's a real, it's a real dilemma. If you want to um, provide context, you kind of have to wade into that, that, um, that medium, right. And, and engage with it. Um, I, more power to you for, uh, for doing so, uh, do, do you think that I know there's there's a lot that we could probably continue to to explore with the um, the art, the manipulation, that that stuff. Um, but on the on the Xenogears front, um, I wanted to to look at one particular pr problematic moment in. Um, in Rico's story, right? Rico's the, the character who's um, this kind of mutant figure. Mm -hmm. um, he's like a, a pro wrestler kind of mutant guy. Uh, he's really interesting uh, visually. He's striking because he has this, um, this bomb collar that he always wears. Somehow he continues to wear it even outside of the place where it's supposed to blow up when you leave, but that's, that's okay. Uh, it looks really cool. But he has this, this flashback scene too. It's, it's, you know, he's a secondary character in a way, but, but he still gets this full, you know, treatment where we, we see his kind of origin story played out for us. Do, do you remember that part? And uh, out, you're going to have to describe it for me. Sorry. Okay. No, no worries. It's triggered when he, he walks into a room that's supposed to be locked, but his, his handprint opens the door, which is the first hint that maybe something's up with him and his, um, his background that we didn't know before. Um, only members of the Kaiser's family are supposed to be able to open that door, right? And so then he's in the room and he's kind of like looking for a place to hide, but he's assailed by the, um, the smell of the perfume in there, right? The smell of the room brings this memory back to him. And he's looking um, at a mirror across from him. And so he sees his image and it's sort of like, the, the, the view becomes kind of wavy, you know, and then it goes into this, um, this flashback sequence where he's, he's a kid and his mom is sick and um, she's trying to tell him, you know, just that he needs to um, be, you know, be, a, be himself. He needs to be brave um, and kind of trust that uh, things are going to be okay. And so it's, you know, it's kind of moving. Um, it's sort of, appeals to, again, a lot of those, those kind of tropes um, of those sorts of stories, right? But, but it doesn't quite, I feel like it doesn't quite work um, in, in, in this case. Um, it's doing all the right things, but somehow it just, it doesn't, um, Rico for me never comes across as, as fully realized as, of a character. And this is a particular problem, I guess, that I, have with Xenogears has a, a work of art in its own right. You know, it has these kind of uh, lapses. And um, for me, 
Rico is one um, interesting one because it because it it applies all of these same tools, but it doesn't quite work in his case. And then another big one is um, the little uh, creature Choo Choo. Do you remember Choo Choo? I do. Yes. Yeah, you can't forget her. She's she's really funny and cute and adorable and all that, but um, but sort of absurd. You know, it's there's. <laughs> There's points where it just kind of breaks the um, the experience for me uh, when when these kinds of um, yeah just lapses I guess in in the judgment in the artistry I'm not sure what what to um, how how to pin it down exactly um, but I, I bring those up I guess just as further instances of um, the ways that art can you know, reveal something. Um, and I guess in some cases just reveal a kind of a lack, right? Like it's, it's incomplete. It's not quite uh, as, as perfectly realized as it might've been. Um, and so maybe that's, maybe that's one other way out of the, the big problem, right? Of, of a manipulative um, hall of mirrors, right? That we kind of get lost in like, there's these flaws, uh, I think, that, that you sort of notice and that help to um, remind you of, of what's real. Does that, does that make sense? I don't know. It does. Uh, I think those two instances, especially with Choo Choo, is probably exp explained by something you've mentioned before that, you know, this is a piece of commercial entertainment that needs to cast as wide of a net as possible. Right. You know, sort of like cutesy, anthropomorphic characters are very common in this genre. It, it's, it seems, you know, especially with square RPGs, if they're a sort of necessity and it can be very hit or miss. Like in from an adult standpoint, having a cutesy animal character can either be charming if it's balanced well, or it can be cloying and just insufferable if it isn't. Um, so I think by hitting a point where the art doesn't, it's obviously, it's not your sensibilities that are being appealed to. It does break the suspension of disbelief for you. And, mm -hmm. you know, everybody witnessing any artwork are, is going to hit upon that moment. You know, it's, <laughs> it's so funny. Um, I don't know if I mentioned it in the last discussion, um, but around that time I was noticing the hysteria that was happening due to the fact that it seemed like the creators of Game of Thrones were sort of no longer invested in the final season and sort of oh, like rushed wow. through everything and kind of really betrayed the, the characters and the storylines that had been built for the previous seasons. Right. And, you know, nothing makes people angrier than to break the suspension of disbelief in something that they're so invested in. Mm -hmm. And it, it when you notice that someone is not maintaining the the rules that they set out for the art that they're creating, then it 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 it, it breaks the fantasy, um, and, and that's that's an issue with all all forms of art. Is you know it's in order for something to be a simulation, it has to it has to abide by its own rules. It has to seem like it's real. Yeah. And to seem like it's real, it needs to be consistent. And yeah, Choo Choo definitely is 
like the quality of it, it does not fit um, with the sort of tone as the rest of the, the game. And, you know, because, and you realize that it's a, a piece of commerce when you, when you come across your feelings of it, you're like, oh, this is appealing to, you know, a, a specific demographic and I'm not part of that demographic. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know. I mean, the Game of Thrones example, um, for, for that one, it, it kind of spawned something much bigger than the show itself. It's almost like they became aware of, um, uh, of how, how excellent the, um, the ideal was that they had, had uh, given rise to and like lost their confidence in their ability to, to meet that or something like that. So they just kind of like, mm-hmm. yeah, just washed their hands of it and just said, well, we just got to cut our losses then. We just got to end it because we can't possibly live up to you know, people's expectations of this. And, and part of that too with that case, I think was the actors, right? The actors were done. They'd had enough of those, of inhabiting that, that, that kind of atmosphere that, um, you know, that they were, they were ready to move on artistically, you know, to do something different. Um, I think with, yeah, with what you're saying about kind of coherence of the world, right, of it um, working with its own rules, um, that does seem like a, a relatively objective way to um, arbitrate or, or evaluate, right, whether a, a work is is living up to its own, you know, so, sort of its own model for what it's trying to do. And, um, yeah, gosh, the scene in Shivat where Choo Choo becomes giant and fights back against the evil, um, you know, father figure um, in, trapped inside the robot. It's just, it's just crazy. It's just crazy how, um, how many little um, references, right, uh, to, to that genre are being pulled in there. And it, gosh, you know, it, it's like, it's trying, I guess, yeah, like you say, to, to appeal to the fans of that genre of um, the giant mech combat, the cutesy character thing. It's, it's got a kind of anthropological um, interest for me. Uh, but as far as like what I care about with the game, it, it totally, uh, it totally loses, it loses me, you know, it's like, I don't know if I can take this seriously. <laughs> I don't know um, uh, quite how to how to salvage that, um, except to, yeah, maybe just see it in a, in a wider uh, from a wider view. Um, but uh, but yeah. Anyway, I feel like again we've we've got many many things left to discuss here. We didn't even really touch on Billy, right? The poor um, the poor priest right. who's yeah. who's getting all this getting all this revelation. Um, we didn't, we didn't hardly talk about, uh, him and, um, and more about the ethos and, uh, oh gosh, the, the whole underwater, uh, sequence right in the, in the, in the lost city under, um, the dig site. Is there, is there one or two things that we really need to, um, kind of wrap up with here though, before I let you go? Nothing specific. Uh, to, to the point you just made, though, um, I like to bring as an example, 
you know, a, a perfectly rendered piece of music you could explain with very simple music theory. But if you were to give a music theorists, you know, you just played random keys, they would need an extraordinary large complex music theory to explain what was going on. Mm -hmm. I feel the reason why, you know, Zenegears has that really interesting blend of really precise, precisely rendered and well-crafted elements along with this sort of seeming randomness or um, almost self-indulgence on the <laughs> parts of the creators, um, as well as the sort of randomness due to the desire to appeal as many demographics as possible. And I, I think that's the reason why you can talk so at length about it, because it has that well-crafted aspect that lets you bring in theory while at the same time has so many confounding elements where you just, uh, you have to work your way through it in, in order to try to explain why it's there. <laughs> and so I, I definitely think that combination makes it an interesting uh, work of art to discuss. Now, as you're describing that, it, it makes me think of Ulysses again, which is, right. yeah, which is kind of the quintessential uh, or like archetype for, for this blend of, of high and low culture and, everything in between it's yeah that that there's an interesting uh topic to recur to for for the next time we uh we get together and do this um absolutely yeah thanks again for your time uh and i i guess we'll uh we'll talk soon okay great thank you take it easy right. bye